we are up to page 440. Okay. So the Kuzari is now responding to the, the, uh, the rabbi who is explaining the difference between coming to a recognition of God as a philosopher and recognizing what God would require of one versus coming to a recognition of God from a religious perspective. The Kuzari said, the difference between Elohim and Yudhei Bavhe is now clear to me. And I understand the difference between the God of Abraham and the God of Aristotle. I see that Yudhei Bavhe is the entity whom souls desire to experience and envision through prophecy, and that Elohim can be arrived at through logic. One who has embraced Yudhei Bavhe will be willing to give up his life and embrace death out of his love for God. But one who has only comprehended through logic will conclude that he is obligated to exalt God so long as he does not have to incur damage or pain in the process. We should not blame Aristotle for scoffing our religious practices because he questioned whether God was even aware of them. In other words, the philosopher's perspective of God being this ultimate for ultimate cause and the prime mover, but ultimately not really caring about what happens in this world or perhaps not even being aware because he's so far above and so far removed. The rabbi said, indeed, Abraham endured the fires of Orkhazden. Right, the idea of uh, the, the Medrash that says that Abraham was you know, being, becoming the proponent of monotheism. And Nimrod, who was the king of the world at that point, believed in polytheism and said anybody who is purporting or propounding a monotheistic worldview will die for their beliefs. And Abraham was thrown into the furnace and he was saved. Wandering, not knowing where he was going, the circumcision, at an age, at an old age, and very painful and, and embarrassing, the sending away of his son Yishmael and binding his son Yitzchak for the slaughter, all because he perceived the divinity through experience, not through logic. Right. The only reason why he was able to go through these tests and pass with flying colors is because his connection to Hashem was not based on logic, but rather based on experience. Not to say that it wasn't based on logic too, but that it wasn't solely based on logic. Abraham saw that none of his deeds were hidden from God and that God compensated him immediately for his righteous deeds and that he was guiding him along the proper path in everything he did to the point where Abraham would not go ahead or stay behind without God's permission. Obviously then, Abraham had to scoff at his earlier pursuits in logic. Our sages of blessed memory discussed this in their explanation of the verse. God took him outside and said, look up please to the skies. God said to him, leave behind your astrology. In other words, God commanded Abraham to leave behind all logical wisdom based on astrology and the like, and instead devote himself to serving the God whom Abraham had experienced. This is the meaning of experience and see that God is good, and so on. Right? Tamu ureu kitov Hashem is a verse in, in Psalms, right? So it's only through an actual divine experience that we can see that God is good on a, a very personal, intimate level, as opposed to coming to a recognition of God through logic, which even if we claim and we believe deeply that everything that Hashem does is for the good and that Hashem has a deep love for the world, it's not the same thing as when we actually experience it. So Abraham is ready to listen to some things from God, but before God starts asking for the heavy lifting, he actually comes to a a uh, connection with Abraham as opposed to just a logical recognition that God exists. God is indeed called the God of Israel because this perception of the divine did not exist in any other nation. 
He is called the God of the land of Israel because Eretz Yisrael possesses a special power in its ear and soil, and this extends even to the heavens above the land. This power, when coupled with observance of the special commandments associated with the land, which is like cultivating the soil, is the key to this people's success. All those who pursue this divine religion follow these people of vision. The Jewish people's souls are at peace in believing the prophets, despite their simplistic messages and rudimentary parables. People are not at peace, however, in believing the philosophers, despite their deep teachings and their beautifully organized writings, and despite the proofs that they present to substantiate their words. The masses do not follow them. It is almost as if people's souls prophesy the truth. As the sages say, the truth is recognized, right? So he's saying, if anything, you would think that the masses would follow the philosophers, and the masses would not be interested in what the Torah and the Tanakh and the prophets have to offer, because th those are very simplistic. And they're not nearly as comprehensive, not nearly as, you know, um, in, in their proofs and in their discussions, they're not nearly as, as comprehensive and as much of a framework. But yet, one of them speaks to our heart and one of them does not. The Kuzari said, I see that you disparage the philosophers and attribute to them the opposite of what they are famous for. Yet, nevertheless, when we see someone become reclusive and ascetic, we say that he has become a philosopher or that he has followed the path of the philosophers. You, on the other hand, deny them any good quality. The rabbi said, I am not disparaging their deeds, right? Wondering, like, what, where is he coming from? Where, is, where do we see the rabbi say denying them any good quality? So the rabbi's response is, indeed, I am not disparaging their deeds. What I explained earlier was the essence of their belief, that man's exclusive objective for success is the pursuit of knowledge, that one should strive to comprehend all that exists using potential intellect which will then transform into actual intellect, which in turn will become an ennobled intellect, resembling the active intellect. This intellect remains forever. This level can be achieved only by devoting one's whole life to study and constant thought. One cannot do this while concurrently dealing with worldly affairs. The philosophers therefore deem it proper to divest themselves of money, status, pleasure, and children so that these things will not distract them from knowledge. So if, if the reason why you are removing yourself from this world is because you believe that the more you are connected to this world, you cannot focus on this ultimate level of something which is similar to the active intellect. That would be a philosophical reason of trying to develop a more ascetic lifestyle. They further believe that once one has achieved the desired objective of wisdom from his pursuit of knowledge, it makes no difference what he does, right? Philosophers don't care about what you do. They care about what you think. They do not fear God because they do not believe that there's any recompense for heeding him. They do not believe that if they were robbed or murdered, they would be punished. They only extolled good deeds and admonished against bad deeds because it is considered the proper and praiseworthy path of conduct. But only because by doing so, one resembles the creator who organized everything based on a system of goodness. They establish modes of conduct based on their intellect, which are not obligatory upon them, but can be adhered to when the need arises. And so there is this concept that many people would, would think and, and suppose that the concept of reward and punishment, the concept that there is a, a, a din, a judgment, and there is a dayan, and that there is a judge, that this is a, a very, very Christian concept and not a Jewish concept, but it's not true at all, right? We do believe that part of the reason why we do what we do is because we know that there will be, there will be consequences. Those consequences are inevitable, it's true, but they are, in other words, they are not punishments. Do you notice I use the word consequences as opposed to punishment? Punishment implies, not that it's that different, but punishment implies perhaps a, a level of anger, a level of wrath, 
as opposed to a consequence. It is an inevitable consequence, cause and effect. When we take certain actions, we will need to cleanse ourselves from the stain and the impurity that those actions have imparted to our soul. The Torah is not that way except for its customs. It has already been explained using Torah wisdom what is in the realm of custom and therefore subject to conditional practice and what is not. In other words, the only thing that in the, within the Torah that are modes of conduct that are not obligatory is what we would call the customs of the Torah. That could change. But everything else in the Torah is obligatory and cannot be, it cannot be changed when you feel like it and not changed when you feel like it. And when you want to do something, you do it. When you don't want to do something, you do it. That is not okay when it comes to the Torah. For the philosophers, though, since it's only based on intellect and nothing more than that, it's not a divine, divinely conceived mode of conduct, then it's up to you to choose how you want to carry it out and when you want to carry it out and when you want to bend the rules and waive the rules. And in, um, if, if I, or if I don't see tomorrow or on Shabbos, I will see you again. Um, let's see, when will it be? Uh, Tuesday night, um, August 23rd, I believe. That's oh. Wow, yeah. safe travels. Have well. a wonderful Thank trip. You. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Take care, everyone. Be okay. Well. Bye-bye. Bye. John.